Welcome to Puzzling Company, your home for at-home puzzles and mysteries. Here are your hosts, Jared and Zach. Well, welcome everybody. I am Jared, with me always. It's Zach. It's Zach. Well, we actually have a new game, Zach. It is called Secret of the Scientist. It is in the Escape Room, the game series, and that's an identity game. Oh, okay. Uh, but... Really, really cool game. We're super pumped to talk about this, especially since it's in the jigsaw genre a little bit, shall we say? That's interesting. But we'll get back into it. Hang on. Right back with Puzzling Company. All right. Jared, I got to cut out a little early today. I have an interview. An interview? You didn't tell me about that. Where at? With Soup. Oh, nice. I've heard really great things about the Soup Shed off of I-24. So come on down to the Soup Shed. No, Jared. Soup is a society for the observation of unknown phenomena. They actually sent me my first case as a test. Take a look at this folder. Why is this folder full of pictures of me? Well, they are all about documenting the weird and bizarre. If you'd like a chance to join Soup, head on over to crackinutmysteries.com. How did they get this picture of me in the shower? Well, welcome back, everybody. Today, as I mentioned, we are talking about Secret of the Scientist, a new game from Escape room the game series and we're really excited to talk about this just it's it's a season of newness it's summer it's warm i love that but we're also dealing with what appears to be a new trend but not a new trend zach okay so trend <laughs> but not new trend it's what we saw coming out of covid and i don't know if this was intentional or not okay but obviously we saw an influx of creators like indie creators yeah and then it seemed like all of the big brand names were like, I've got a great idea. Let's put jigsaw puzzles into our escape room style games. Oh, yes. And to say that that's a lot. I mean, we see that in the exit series now. Yeah. And then but it was just kind of funny that both of these big name companies decided to go at it at the same time. And mm -hmm. that's all I'm referencing. They've handled it different ways. But what this game is, is it it, it is a really uh, unique format, and that's actually where we're going to start our discussion today on likes and dislikes of the game is we love the format. Yeah. Uh, to describe it a little more, I'll let that hand over to Zach. Yeah, so the format's very interesting for this game. Um, so you receive a box that obviously comes with instructions. Um, it comes with a little booklet, explains how the game plays, because this game is different than most. Um you will have a cipher that uh, explains how it works to one, make the cipher work, but then second, how you get your answer from it by doing certain instructions. Uh, it tells you how the hint system works, which involves the book itself. Um, when you open the box, you actually get like a three by three, or it's like a, is it a two by three grid? Two by three, yeah. yeah it's like a two by three grid um, of squares that can be opened up that have things inside them. Now, you do not want to open those. Uh, just read the instructions. They'll tell you everything you need to do. But the game consists of you trying to open and complete each of the like the squares. Um, and there, when you open them up, you find new things in them. Jigsaw pieces, new pieces of a puzzle, all that kind of jazz. And then as the game goes on, you start off with just a corner of a board of a jigsaw thing. And it keeps building and building until the, the uh, finale. And you yeah. get to see what you built. It was so cool. Like, it was such an imaginative idea to be building the space that we're in. Mm-hmm. 
because so many other games that we play, one of the biggest things, if, if you ever come to our office, we have stuff from all of the games that we've played on our wall, some of our favorite things. Mm-hmm. Some of our favorite things to collect are maps. Yes. We love collecting the maps. That's one of our favorite things. But in this game, they don't give it to you all at once. And then they also say, you're going to put it together. Yes. And that was a lot of fun. It also feeds into the kind of that same mentality we had when we were playing the break-in. Like, we didn't know what the next room, quote-unquote, was going to look like, yep. what it was going to entail. There was a lot of mystery involved in that, and I really loved the format of every time building a new space. It, it felt very authentic to escape room sensibilities, mm-hmm. is what I'll say. Would you agree with that? No, I agree. I, it was also fun because you would, you know, when we played it, Jared was definitely the builder of the jigsaw. Yes. Like, he was the one building the puzzle. I was the one more reading the instructions as well as reading like the narrative that comes with the game Um, because inside each of the things was a new narrative piece to explain what just happened, but also what the next step is that you're about to take. And it was really fun getting to read the narrative and kind of guess what I thought that space would look like, you know, before it it was put together. And then when you put it together, you're like, wow, that's what I expected, (laughs) but not what I expected. But it was all, I mean, it looked great. The jigsaw pieces, when we finished it, I thought the map looked Oh, awesome. it looked it looked fantastic. Like it was very well designed. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with you. And there were just elements of it that kept the suspense going. And I really, really just had a fun time. Like you said, like you were kind of instruction and start of the puzzle. And then you were totally okay with saying like Jared, you're the jigsaw guy. And I was more than happy to be the jigsaw guy. Well, it was fun because I you definitely I think enjoy it more than me. But then also it was fun like helping you do it, but not be the one responsible for building most of it. Yes. It felt like a good use of everybody's time. And that's the other thing I want. I really want to applaud the company. I want to applaud identity games for saying they very openly say this is a one to two player game. Yes. And I love that because so many games out there will say, hey, we're one to six, we're one to eight. Most games we see are one to four, yeah. which I feel like is a healthy range. But this, and I believe Soup was is labeled as a one, to, by Kraken at Mysteries is labeled as a one to two player game. I think so. Like best played with that amount. And I just really appreciated that. And Zach and I felt that. Like it oh, was yeah. the perfect balance of we always have something to do and what we were doing was fun. Zach could open, start the puzzle going. I could finish the puzzle. And then we both kind of met at the solution. Yeah. It flowed very well in regards to the format. Well, it was also fun because how you, like, the, the I thought the most interesting part about the format is that you needed both. And what I mean by that, without spoiling any of the parts, is like, like Jared said, I would be doing, like, the actual puzzle. Like, I would maybe sometimes get a piece of the puzzle that I needed to solve myself. But I'm, I'm, but I'm missing the map. Like... One of the fun parts is like, I knew what I needed to do, but I didn't know where and why. And then when we built it, I was like, oh, there it is. Like, that makes sense. And then by the time we got, like, it was fun when we would finish it, we knew immediately, like, kind of what we needed to do. Yes. And then we, like you said, we get to meet back and connect, like, both parts. Like, okay, I've learned all this, and I know what to do with it. Have you finished the map? Yes. Okay, now we get to do it together. And I finish agree. it. Definitely, definitely great. So, Jared, we kind of talked about the puzzle solve mechanic a little bit, or I was saying kind of how I, I enjoyed it, but... Can you elaborate on why we liked it so much? One is I think I'm a personal sucker for unique puzzle solve mechanics. Like puzzle solve mechanics. When, yeah, we, yeah. when we talked about like exit and they have their cipher. Yes. Um, they're just this really cool fitting mechanism that feels kind of like a cipher wheel, yes. but it's but you also put it to get like put it together like a puzzle. Yes. So it it fits well with the theme. 
but that guided your ability to tell you when you were able and which new box you were opening. That is correct. Yes. And it fit really well. And it was just fun because they give you multiple things on that, that you could be solving for. You could be solving for color. You could be solving for shape. You could be solving for number. Mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, the only thing that felt a little hinky was the turning mechanic was turning it clockwise this many turns or that was, I wasn't as a big fan of that, but it it still worked fine. Like it was a perfectly acceptable system, Mm -hmm. but it just felt very organic to the game and something that I haven't seen before. And it just flowed really well with what we were doing. It was like, come to our conclusion. Okay, let's take it back to our solving mechanic, put our solving mechanic together which was fun. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, let's see if that works out to one of our six solutions that we have to come to. Well, you said it best. I think the fun part about this one specifically than other ones that are like it is that you get to build this one. Yes. Like in other games, like, like in the exit one, cause we just talked about those. I really like that cipher. The fun part is you, you find the answers you need and then you use the cipher to figure out if it's correct. Yes. The fun part with this one is you have to do a puzzle to even put it in the correct way. Then you do it. So like, there's like an extra added step, but it's a fun one because it's thematically fitting with a jigsaw puzzle, like style escape room yes. at home game. Like it, it just hit both those notes of like, okay, this is a cool mechanic that we like the cipher style, but then also we get to build it and mess with it. Yeah. And mess. With, and, it, and it was also nice too, because it's only four pieces. I don't think that's a big spoiler. And if you're to stu- solve it. Yeah. yeah. And if you're stuck on a puzzle, if you don't want to take it to your hint system, you have the ability almost to reverse engineer it. Yeah. To say like, oh, okay, that doesn't meet the criteria, but three of the four criteria meet. Mm. So, oh, I, okay, I can kind of see that. So in in one instance where there was a puzzle that we were struggling on a little bit, it allowed us to go back and try to make sense of something where we felt like there could have been multiple answers, but we got to the answer that the game was looking for because of the format of the solves the mm. system. So that was kind of nice too. That's a little higher tier here nor there, but we, sure. we enjoyed that from just playing a lot of these games. Zach, what was our final thing that we really liked about this game? I would say the, the thing we liked would be the meta puzzle. I thought it was a good finale. And obviously that's what the meta puzzle is supposed to do is to take all the information you've gathered throughout the game and give you an impactful finish. Yes. And this game really, in my opinion, excelled at it. Um, It gives you instructions on what you're kind of trying to do. The final jigsaw um, puzzle sets up kind of what you're trying to do, other than the puzzle itself telling you what you're trying to build and kind of what you're trying to solve with that. I can't spoil it, unfortunately, but I had a blast with making the final puzzle the final thing and then using it because once we realized what it did and the space it's made for it, I was like, okay, that's, yeah, that was, it was awesome. really cool. I thought it was a really well thought through f- ending. And it also, the, obviously what a meta does is it involves everything you've done before. Like it was really fun that the jigs, like when you finish the game, spoiler, you do build the entire jigsaw puzzle. I don't yes, know if that's I a big surprise, obviously. Yeah. If you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you're building the entire thing, but <laughs> You build the entire thing and you realize what you built. But then second, it's that thing of going through all of it and realizing like, oh, wow, there is like we built this space and all those things I noticed earlier on in the other rooms. I didn't realize until now that they all connected, you know, and yes. And then you get to do the final puzzle and go, wow, that's true. And with that, 
I'm glad you mentioned that. There is this level of satisfaction, even though this isn't a huge jigsaw puzzle, where you sit down, you have the interactable that features in the meta, but you also just kind of get to look at what you built. There aren't a whole lot of other these style games out there where you look at all of the materials you went through and you're like, oh, because most of the time you're deconstructing things, right? In a lot of the other games, you've folded these pieces of paper, you've cut this out, or you've written all over in this code. But in this game, you've simultaneously deconstructed the mystery, but constructed this really unique space. Yeah, And that felt so good with the meta that put in there. Like at the end of it, you just kind of, I had a different sense of accomplishment. And I think that was really smart. And it was really nice to see people incorporate something that is an older style of puzzle in the jigsaw world and build it into something that's more modern in the escape room world. I loved it. It was, it was a very enjoyable experience, especially for the price, which I think you can get this game right now on Amazon for about 20 bucks. But I want to transition into talking about where we felt like there was some room for improvement in this game. And I do want to give this game a little bit of a shout out because before we go into, I had played the very original, the four piece game that had coming out and that felt it had like it had some major sticking points, like a lot to improve on. And I'm hoping one day that we can go back and replay that and maybe get some perspective. Um, but looking into this game, I felt like a lot of this was improved and most of what I'm going to talk about and what Zach is going to talk about, I felt like this stuff is minor. Because overall, the experience I felt like was very enjoyable, very unique format. The first thing I want to talk about is I felt like there could have been more room. And room is the key word here to amplify some of the non-jigsaw puzzling material in terms of its size. Boy, (laughs) yeah, I, I will tell you. Jared knows, uh, but I did most of this. The The interesting part is that it's all made to be, like, the Very box itself is, is, the box it comes in is quite big, like the whole experience. Now, the small boxes individually that contain, the little like, compartments. the jigsaw, like the yes. compartments that you're trying to solve, those are not the biggest. But specifically, the first puzzle, and a few other points, the writing, because it's trying to fit itself in a tiny compartment, all of the, like, actual solving materials except for like one in my opinion was quite small like and i mean like it felt like you had the like a two inch piece of paper and you had to read like a paragraph on it and jared will tell you like it looks so awkward because there's me like sitting over it like in between two of my fingers trying to read the entire pair it's not that small i'm being a little dramatic but but it's very small. Like if you have any issues with like your eyesight or anything that's like really, you're gonna struggle. What is this? Is this an escape game for ants? That's it, what it, it jokingly, but not. It does feel like that. At least with some of the materials, it's not the most. Like for us, obviously, it wasn't bad. It didn't feel necessary, but it felt way too small. Yeah, and it, especially if you had people who are maybe like have weaker eyesight, you know, like have their issues with their eyesight, like that would be rough because it'd feel like you'd have this small piece of paper in front of your, in front of your eyes and you could still barely like right. read it out depending. And I don't want to diminish the costs and size requirements that come with a mass market. Game, oh, agreed. Yeah. But I totally would have been okay with a folded up piece of paper for some of these instead of like one nice, neat. And I agree that first puzzle you were like, we were squinting. Well, the funny part is like, you could you could say that, but at the same time, like for the compartments, they're small, 
but in one of them they fit like a like a decently sized little book. Yeah. And that was pretty that was good size. Like it was not too big and it wasn't too small. But like I said, it was mainly like the first puzzle and then the end. At the end, there's like a thing you read. Both of those were kind of small. It, it, but it felt weird because when you actually look in the space, you're like, maybe it couldn't fit in there. And you're like, it could. You could fit a, a, a little bit bigger of a sized item. Yeah, it just, I, I know that sounds kind of nitpicky, but it was just, it felt glaringly obvious. It was like, we're building this big space, right? And then yeah. we're reading itty bitty pieces of paper. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was just kind of comical, but at the same time, it was a little frustrating. Yeah, luckily enough, I didn't have many issues, with it, at least on my end. Um, but yeah, I agreed. It's it was it's funny because, it, like I said, at the worst of this is like our biggest nitpick, like right. one of our biggest nitpicks. Then right. like, uh, boohoo, that's not that horrible. Uh, the next one can be a little bit spoilery, but I don't. It doesn't ruin any part of the gameplay. Okay. But we had a little bit of an issue with the final part of the jigsaw as it related to the meta. Okay. Yeah. In the fact that it didn't. <laughs> T- talk a little bit about this because you and I had a good little back and forth about this. Yeah, it's interesting. So the the final part of the jigsaw completes the map. Spoiler. I don't know if you I can see that. I know you couldn't see that coming. You were going to finish the <laughs> jigsaw puzzle. Um, but its actual involvement with the final puzzle in terms of solving the meta is not it required. It doesn't do anything to that. It sets things up aesthetically. Correct. It it set. I can't spoil, which is the hard part yeah, to explain. But it this. doesn't. It doesn't do anything for you. Like you it doesn't could, solve the puzzle. It sets up how the final puzzle works and the aesthetics of the final puzzle. Right, but you could solve the final puzzle without having oh, to build the. final I mean, final technically, jigsaw. I did. I you did when yeah. I solved it. I didn't technically put it in the spot it was supposed to go. But you were, you were like, I think I've solved this, and I was like. That's impossible. I haven't finished. And then I, I just started doing it and I, and it was correct. But, but once we finished it and then I put it there and did the same thing, I was like, okay, aesthetically, that's really cool. Yes. But it's not technically, like I said, I solved the final puzzle without actually having the final space. And that was, that was like a little weird moment because we had been enjoying the game so much. And I was like, just give me a second. Like, let me get the jigsaw done. And maybe some people tackle the game a little bit differently. Like maybe you build the jigsaw and then you deal with it. I'm sure some people take that route, but either way it felt odd because in every other part of the game, you were using the components of what you just built. Yes. And then you got to that point and it was a purely aesthetic decision that was made. And I think, I think it was just a lost opportunity. I'll call it a lost opportunity to do something that would have involved everything that we had been gaining throughout the game Mm -hmm. and putting that final piece of information in there that we would have needed to finish everything off. Well, the other fun part, which you, you know, that you mentioned was that it's, this could have just been an issue on us, right? It's that, it's that interesting part that you do have to like, look at it and be like, okay, the creator did this and you can see where people could potentially solve it without finishing it. But we did, I did, like, we solved both things split. And then, like you said, you needed the room. But this is the first time that maybe, like, we played it different than a lot of people. A lot of people do one at a time. Like, they do the, they like said, they build a jigsaw, then they do the puzzle. Yes. But because we split up, I was able to solve, like, I knew what I was looking for pretty quickly. That's the other part. Maybe I just solved it. And I'm not, like, that sounds like a, a brag. Humble I, brag, I, I, humble Zach, brag. over here. No, no, no. <laughs> but, it, but it's realistic. Like, what if I just got lucky and was able to figure out the, like, and solve it quicker than maybe I was intended? You know, if that makes sense. Like, almost like I solved it quicker than, like, I was supposed to realize it. So by the time you were finished, like, we would have met up. But because I was able to do it without it, mm-hmm. like, I solved it early. And it felt, like you said, it, it, it took away a little bit of the experience being like, 
oh, we really didn't need that. Like aesthetically, we need that space to finish the puzzle, but it wasn't needed for the puzzle. Sure. And that, and I think that's why we're treating this as a, a, a little bit of a, not a super big critique, but it just felt like a, a missed opportunity. Yeah. Like what you had was fine, but comparatively to everything else you did, it didn't add up. And if you had put something in there, it would have finished this up on an even higher moment mm-hmm. than it had before. But the last thing that we want to talk about is really just a hope for this company. We really enjoyed the format switch. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you follow uh, Identity Games and what they've done in the escape room space, it feels like they're always switching formats. Even their early formats, I know you haven't played those yet, but their system for solving was very unique. You were sticking uh, censored little pieces of plastic into like this big looking doomsday device and there was an actual running timer. That's interesting. They've done some VR uh, they've really mixed it up, and I feel like mm. that's where this company is at its strength, is giving unique experiences with unique formats in the at-home world. Mm-hmm. So this is just kind of a call to action and them to say, like, hey, please please keep giving us these unique looks, because I feel like this was a win for the series, and we really enjoyed it. Agreed? Agreed. Yeah. Uh, but that's going to really wrap us up. Overall, I, I enjoyed this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would recommend this game. I wouldn't call it uh, something that is like super new player friendly. Some of the puzzles were a little bit of a higher level. Um, so maybe if you've played a couple, this could be like the next step that you take, I would probably say. But honestly, this could be a game that if you're a great puzzle solver and you want to sit down with your kid and have them put the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Zach was our dad when we played and I was the kid putting the puzzle together. Yep. And we both had a blast. I have yeah. no qual- no qualms about it. So give it a shot. Let us know what you think about it. But hold on with us. We're going to come right back with Puzzles to the People. Solve puzzles, write reviews, win prizes. It's time for Puzzles to the People. <sighs> I'm over it. Over what? Christmas. People can't let this holiday go, man. I'm still receiving Christmas-themed mail. Look at this red envelope I got yesterday. Jared, you are so uncultured. Uncultured? Because I refuse to celebrate Christmas year-round? No, you're uncultured because one, that color is scarlet, not red. And two, because that envelope is jammed-packed with puzzles and mysteries. Scarlet Envelope features escape room-style experiences that you may receive every month in the mail. Each episode features a different story, but all their experiences are tied together in a bigger narrative that you were trying to unravel. I think I could get down with Christmas all year. Well, head on over to scarletenvelope.ca to start your adventures today. Wow, what a great time interval to talk about great companies' games and for two very handsome gentlemen to talk about them. You're all up in the humble brag right now. Oh, I know. Praise me. I won the competition game. You're welcome. (laughs) Never going to let that go. Well, welcome to our second section where we call Puzzles to the People. We do a lot of different things here, Zach. What do we talk about? Jared, honestly, I'm just as surprised as everyone else because I feel like every episode you bring something new to the table. Generally in the past, it was reviews or comments that people left about certain games um, from you know different uh, reviews on websites, stuff like that. Sometimes we ask questions. You'll ask me questions about a certain topic. Um, sometimes I asked you a question. I mean, sometimes I asked you once. Oh, that was fun. And then now, I, I honestly don't know. You could you could honestly throw a curveball at me, and I wouldn't be surprised at this point. We're going to keep it fairly simple today. We're going to talk about one of, uh, if I'm going to be selfish today, one of my favorite things to talk about, oh, no. which is game format. 
Oh, okay. I the, thought you were going to talk about Pokemon. Oh, don't get me. Listen, <laughs> if there is ever going to be a Pokemon escape game, I will be that person camped out, tent, everything outside of the insert your blank store. Oh, don't worry. I'll be there with you. I'm yeah. not. I, I'm judging, but I'm not. I'm, I'll be there. If, Pokemon, if you're listening, please, <laughs> please. please Either make it yourself or give it out to a great company to use as... Give it to me. <laughs> it would be amazing. Adversely, if there's ever going to be a Pokemon Escape game, I would travel great lengths for that. Yes. However, I digress. <laughs> we want to talk, as I mentioned, about game format, because that's something we experienced a unique form of today, kind of this resurgence of what we've seen in using Jigsaw and these type of puzzle games. Mm-hmm. But the questions that I have lined up for you today are going to format about that. And the first one is, Zach, and I'll answer this as well after you, is do you have a format that you prefer? And if so, what is it? Or are you a more of a, does it really matter to me? Just make the game within the format work. I That's an interesting question. I don't know if I have a format that I like the most. I I will say that at the end of the day, I don't care as long as it is done well. I think that is the biggest point. But I will say if I look back at games that I enjoy, I think games that are have a format of, I guess the way I would put it is that you are given information and trying, like I almost want to say like uh, Enigma Emporium's like Wish You Were Here, like... Like, I mean, I've enjoyed many games, but like, that's like one of my favorite games of all time. Like in my personal experience, like high puzzle solving code like, breaking type yes, of stuff is, yeah. is your, that's jam. like my format. Like, cause I, I think I do well at those and those are like, those are fun to make. Like give me a bunch of like small postcards that have a ton of puzzles on them and like make me sit there for hours, like messing with them. Okay. That's fair. My, I, I've thought a while about this and I tend to lean to formats that have me doing something physical on my table. Yeah. And I've said it before, I'm a huge sucker for any type of manipulatable. Hopefully in the future here, we'll also be reviewing some puzzle boxes, which I think will be cool as well. But I think that's why this game that we're talking about today hit so home with me because I have been on a jigsaw kick since COVID. Yeah. And I just really enjoy that, even though it is very, in some cases, repetitious. Mm. But that seems to play well for me. Uh, I struggle with more digital games. Yeah. Uh, Like when we played the ASPMC, that was not my favorite format, even though I thought it was still a good game. Mm -hmm. But I think it does affect your gameplay, even though it may not determine your purchasing. So that's where I kind of want to take this conversation is, Will you not play a game based on format? Are there some formats that are out there that you're just like, and I don't mean theme. I don't mean things like that. Purely you're like, well, I know that the way that this game is going to play is X, Y, and Z, and that's not my jam. Sure. That's a hard question. I I mean, obviously, with what we do, we play everything. Right. I mean, we've played ones that you just use cards. We've used some where you don't, you know. It's all digital. Um, we mostly on the only things we've covered on the show do have a physical aspect, but yes. like, I mean, we've played pure digital ones. Um, we've played jigsaws. I mean, uh, anything you think of, we probably played at this point. I think if I, I would say that there are formats that when I look at them, I would be less incentivized. I think is the right word I would use to purchase them. 
But the difference, to, like you said to me when I said that, like, I'm fine with any format is that's generally true. Like, if you can hype up a game to me enough or intrigue me, I don't care. But, like, I think the hard part, which we've discussed actually in other topics, is how other formats or styles of games can attract you to play it. Because it's like, okay, well, if I play an all digital game, right? Like you were saying, that's like one of the things that is harder for you to enjoy, or it's like your more least favorited format. Yes. Like, how can that make me want to play it? When I know, or like um, another big one that we talked about when we played like um, Lost Temple and um, you're talking uh, CU Adventures. CU Adventures, I think it's 413. Yes. Um, Like, those types of games like how um like the paper you know like the paper cutout paper print yes all that, kind of, that like category or format of games those are ones that i'm less intrigued by and generally would not do them unless I'm, they're hyped up to me or told that they're great yes like it would like be hard pr- for print and plays print plays yes yeah. that's the right word sorry yeah print plays are hard like i would say that's the format of st- or style of games that it would be very hard for me to buy unless i'm told otherwise that they're yes. great I think the other format that is a little difficult for me, even though I will say we've played a a number of these games and they've really hit home well with me, Mm -hmm. is I think on the onset of all of this, I was really turned off by things that were more narrative than puzzly. Okay, yeah. So so think about, like, uh, I would argue that The Messenger is more narrative than puzzly. Correct. Uh, Runes of Odin, in some aspects, is more narrative than puzzly. Root of all evil. Root of all evil, is... even though we haven't covered that yet, is more narrative than puzzly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's just me, because I love the puzzle part, because I feel like I'm in control of that section, whereas the narrative, I'm a passenger yeah. for that section. But I really think a lot of the games that we've played have actually flipped my opinion about that type okay. of thing. Because I know you love that stuff. You eat that yeah, up. I really like narrative-based games. Even Full Deck was another one where the, the primary narrative could be worked out and there was just a lot of ancillary puzzles if you wanted to go deeper with it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it is it is interesting to see where you might lean and why you might lean that way even before you've played a lot of games. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, then we're going to postulate for the general public. Do you think format matters at all to the first time player? That's hard. I don't want to, sorry, I'm going to ask that in two parts. Okay. Do you think it matters before they purchase a game? Okay. Not knowing what they're about to get themselves into. And do you think it is a primary factor for loving or disliking a game in a lot of the games? Ooh, okay. So let's take that one step at a time. Question one is, do you think people are even researching the format of these games before they look at it or purchase it? I think that's a hard question. I would say generally no, but I think a lot of people do ask that question. I mean, there's lots of people's, and I'm going to take this to adjacent spaces just because it's hard for me to relate to it because I don't sell or make games. So I don't get this question a lot, you know, but like in adjacent spaces, right? Like in escape rooms, um, you know, you get a lot of people who ask what they're getting involved in, right? right. Some people don't at all, right. and it's surprising. But there are many people who call and they're like, "Okay, what what am I actually doing? Is this a room to room? Yeah, is it a room to room? Um, what am I like really doing in the room? Do I need to do this? Like, they ask a lot of questions, right? And I think people do that with is like escape room style. I mean, I do that. Like when there's a game I don't know, I generally am looking it up and looking at how it should play because that intrigues me. 
but I've played a lot. So at this point it doesn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but like, you know, I'm intrigued by that thing. So that, that that's something that I feel like people do, but I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter as much or people don't actively do it as much as they probably should. If they, if they truly care about a format, if that makes sense. Like if they, if they're looking for a very certain format, but most people, when they join the space or they're playing a new game, they don't know all the formats, right. you know, they, they might, cause that's the other interesting part. You might play like an exit and you think that's the only format. Right. We, and we you know, talked about that. Playing mass markets. Yeah. Like you might, like you might be, your first experience could be an exit and then you play an unlock and they're, they're a bit different. And then you play like a uh, escape room or you play like um escape room in a box. Um, you play like a flashback. Um, you play any of those, like any of those types of games you go, okay, well this is different. You know, and then you play like Root of All Evil from, you know, Krakenut and you're like, okay, well, this is nothing like any yeah, of those. Yeah, that's nothing like any of those experiences. You know, you, I think people are, they get surprised sometimes because they'll play a format that is very generally based for the public and is pretty simple in formatting, like easier cards to read, things to do, all set up. And then they jump to another one and it very much goes crazy. And then to answer your second question, which is, do you think that that influences how people like or dislike a game or that style? I think it very much does because I think sometimes people's first impressions of a game sets a lot. So if you play, like if I played an exit as an example, right? Let's say I'm Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy plays. <laughs> hi, Jimmy. Hi. I, Jimmy, uh, play exit and I did not like it at all. I didn't like the format. As in the example, you play another one and it has the same style format, like, you know, has cards, has these things, has the cipher, has cipher. You'd be like, no, I don't want to do this again. You want to try something different. There are people I think that it does that too, because there's people like that in other, like I said, the the interesting part is when you look at adjacent spaces that are kind of like ours, when people have an experience like that, they don't want to do it again. They're like, I want, I don't like single, like in escape rooms, the thing that I hear a lot is like, people don't like playing, you know, they'll play like a one room experience and like, let's say they don't like that format. Then they're like, they never want to do it again. They only want to play the like multi rooms. Even if the one room is like excellent, they'll be like, no, I, I want the like, they want that because they experienced it one time or they just don't like that. Sure. So I, I think it very much influences your um, decisions on if you want to after you play the first one. I, I think that we're at a really unique time for the first part of this question because I agree before, I don't know that people were making decisions with format being one of the key criteria, it was mm-hmm. more so theme, maybe even the way that the marketing looked yeah. so forth and so on. I, Cause let's be honest, that's not something that's like listed on the box. The right. only one that I think I really think back to is like you said, flashback flashback was trying to be very like ex- explain to, that's not a word they're trying to explain sure. very clearly to the customer what like, you're trying to do, what you're trying to do. Agreed. Uh, and even in their new game that's coming out there, there's that element in there. But I think it's so smart on games like what we've just played with The Secret of the Scientist and with the Exit game coming out. Because now they are realizing that format can be an attraction, mm. right? Because think about it. If you see Escape Game, you don't know what that means if you haven't played before. Is it a murder mystery? What am I going to be doing? But when you see these new games come out that are jigsaw puzzles, you know that at least you will be able to put that puzzle together. Mm-hmm. If you can do nothing else, I can put that jigsaw puzzle together. I may not be able to solve the puzzles. And I, I think I'm going to call it a lure. I just think it's a really great idea to use another format that so many millions of people are comfortable with to draw you in to yeah. their world. 
Like, I, I just think like, why haven't we been doing that sooner? Like, why didn't it start that way? Mm -hmm. So for, for these companies, especially the one that we're reviewing it today to put that out there, it's like, oh yeah, like that's a genius way to use format up front. So going forward from these games, I do think people are going to start looking at how games play yeah. on the outset. If you're a customer before this, I agree, maybe not as much, but now that we're seeing things and we're using things in these games that the mass market is more familiar with. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to start seeing people wielding that. And I think you saw this company integrity do it before when they tried to use the VR, yeah. even though we haven't played that, but I didn't hear that that was like the most amazing games from other reviewers and things like that. Mm -hmm. But this puzzle games got these puzzle games have a lot of momentum. I'm hearing good things from a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting to, not necessarily lead with the theme because scientist is so, you know, it's not a bad theme, but it's not like the whole scientist game. I've got to play that, you know, I'll be honest. Most scientist based games make me not want to play it. Right. It's, it's a, it's a regular commonplace theme. Yeah. And, but what carries this is the format. Agreed. Very it's much so, fun. it's so interesting. So, and then to answer the second part of that question, I completely agree with you. I think a format done well, is a win and a format overcomplicated is maybe people missing out on really other great aspects of the game. Mm. Like we talked about break in. I think the format for that game is equally one of the best I've ever seen yet. One of the most confusing solving systems that we've run into. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yeah, the format is dynamite. Yeah. Like what Agreed. a brilliant idea. But then I feel like the system to move you through is just a, a tad bit overcomplicated for the regular player, even a, even a little bit for us. We are a little jumbled up yeah. trying to use that. But I agree. I think when you're thinking through a game, all of these aspects matter mm. greatly and you can't miss out on one. But I will say one of my favorite ways to experience a, a game, a new game, is to see a different format. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why this game hits so hard for me personally is I loved I, if nothing else, I just loved putting that puzzle together and then having a new puzzle to put together. And then I had something new to solve. Like it just resonated with me in a way that was fed that tangibility and puzzle solver at the same time. Yeah. And I think the other cool part is we're obviously in a very, I'd say lucky space for us that we get to play a lot of the games that we genuinely enjoy. You know, we play a lot of the same format when we play a lot of different styles of games. So to us also getting like a whole new format is like a breath of fresh air. And I feel like some people who are like us who play a lot, you know, it's the same thing. Like, you know, you, you're used to playing the same style of formats and you see a jigsaw puzzle and you're like, wow, let's see how this goes. And you play and you're like, wow, this was nice. Like, you know, even at, even if you, like sometimes even if you didn't enjoy the game, depending on the game, which obviously we enjoyed this one, but let's say you didn't, like you said, the jigsaw puzzle was fun. Like yes. that was a breath of fresh air in yes. a space like this, that it was, it felt nice. You know, and we've played other games that were new to us, like when we started doing detective style games or the like murder mystery. Yes, that was a good switch. That was a good too. switch to us. Like playing the more narrative based ones, like, you know, getting to play like the messenger. Um, you know, we haven't covered root of all evil, but like when I got to, you know, like when I finally got to open the box, like that was a fun experience for me, like a new change of pace. That was, that was really great. Absolutely. And we, I'll even take this into another adjacent land because Zach and I on a weekly basis usually play board games together too, apart from what we do here in the at home mystery and puzzle mm -hmm. space. And most of the games that we're used to playing are, 
you know, more strategic board oriented games like Catan or yeah. even uh, deck builders is something that we've played together for a long time. Jerry like, gets wrecked in them. Like DC, the DC deck builder, we're big fans of that series. Yeah. But um, a couple weeks ago, we switched away from that and we played a game called uh, Mysterium. And, oh yes. And it was it was very different from what we were doing and we thought oh it'll kind of be in like the vein of what we're used to. But man, we had just had a ball playing that game. Like it was such a good change of pace and I I think there's just a lot of room for growth in our world in in what we cover mm-hmm. for people to keep experimenting with format, to keep trying different things. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll shout out some of our colleagues as we wrap this section up, but uh, at the time that we are listening to this, the most recent episode of the Reality Escape Pod yep. um, is with Nick Moran, and that's that, that's what their whole conversation is about: is him flipping structures and formats and playing around with that entire world to try to make something new and exciting for players. Yep. If you're not listening to the Reality Escape Pod, uh, you need to go check that out. We'll throw a link in the notes. Those are our friends, and they're putting out a really excellent podcast that should be part of your listening as well. Yes, um, but. We're we're gonna have Nick on the show hopefully down the road once Spectre and Vox hit, mm-hmm. and that's a prime example. Uh, that that's that is a w- brand new format. I'm very excited for that. We've seen hints at it, but nobody has ever shipped me an entire game that I'm gonna put together, and then put even electronics in yep. and and play. So stuff exciting stuff like that. But we just love talking about the ins and outs of this stuff, and we just want to thank you guys for listening with us. Mm-hmm. Hang on for our last sections. We've got. Questions for distributors? We'll be right back. There are some awesome people who make the puzzles we love to solve. This is Questions for Creators. Zach, you never responded to my email about the rally next week. The rally? Yeah, dude, they're trying to tear down the old tree off of Maine. That's a bat-coon habitat. I think you mean raccoon. (laughs) Zach, next thing you know, you'll be calling swargators alligators. Swargators? Bat-coons? Jared, what are you talking about? Dude, everyone knows that the American Society for the Protection of Magical Creatures spends countless hours trying to preserve the habitat of these magical and magnificent creatures. Do you want your kids growing up in a world where there's no lobguins? Do I? Well, that's a fair question. Lobguins are actually very temperamental creatures, but sometimes I can do without them. But What everyone should do is head over to theaspmc.org, that's T-H-E-A-S-P-M-C.org, and sign up to help their investigations. Only you can prevent the extinction of these magical creatures. Welcome back, guys. We are now in the section that is called Questions for Creators. Um, This is actually an interesting section. Um, We've changed it up a little bit in some of our episodes by introducing and talking to people who aren't the creators generally it is a creator uh but we like to spice it up occasionally gotta spice it up gotta keep the format shifting we're always looking for something a little bit different it's the it's the creatives in us Mm -hmm. Uh, so jared who are we talking to well i'm not gonna spoil who it is come on man but i will let them introduce herself in a second but uh just to reiterate what zach was saying this is somebody else that exists and plays a crucial role in how we get our games but not the creator This is a distributor and the president of a quite large distribution company who we were very fortunate to get to come on our show um, and build a relationship with. But what's really cool about this person's job is their perspective that they have because they're not just fulfilling and providing games for the world that we live in. 
right? So you're going to hear a little bit about the juxtaposition of this versus some of the other materials that sell. It's, it's a really interesting conversation. If you are a game creator or just someone that's fascinated by the gaming world in general, you're going to love this conversation. Also, you're going to love the path of our guests today. Some of the companies that they've worked for, the journey that they've taken to get where they are, really, really cool stuff. I nerded out a lot during this interview. It was a blast. You're going to enjoy it. But we're going to we're going to hop right in there now if uh if Zach if you want to bring us into that. So what is your name? The name of your company and what does your company do? Brad Chapman, I'm the president and owner of Kroger, uh, and it's not the grocery store. It is a distributor up in Canada that now is distributing um, toy and gift products through North America. Grant, one of my favorite things about your story is kind of the pathway that you took to get where you are today. You've worked with some really big, really cool companies. Take us on your journey, man. How did you end up owning your own distribution company that now distributes some of the games that we love to play? Absolutely. Thanks. Um, I'm a Canadian. I was born and raised in Montreal, a bilingual city. Great city, beautiful piece of piece of land to go and visit if you ever want to. Um, I was there till about I was 22 or 23, graduated university in Quebec and then moved out west um, to British Columbia, the Vancouver area to work for Nintendo. So that was my first foray into into working for uh, a gaming company. And I was responsible for experiential uh, events. Uh, we had basically arcades, free arcades at different uh, um, carnival areas, as well as I was responsible for launching new systems and new games. So some of the games that I got to work on, Mario Kart, fantastic, obviously, platform continues today, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Country. Uh, and then some of the systems were the SNES, the Super Nintendo system, uh, Virtual Boy, which is a bit was basically a virtual bust, but uh, it was cool. It was a cool concept, but it was really uh, it was a, probably ahead of its time. And you know, it was Dot Matrix. It wasn't so exciting. Uh, then it, I, I eventually got moved back to the Nintendo sales office in Van, uh, from Vancouver to Toronto, and that's where roots just started to to to, to lay. So stayed with Nintendo for roughly another two and a half years on the merchandising side of things, some more on the sales and merchandising side of things, but realized my passion was still in, in marketing and, and product. So I ended up uh, moving to Nike and it felt like I was going alphabetical. So I went from Nintendo to Nike. Um, you know, who knows the alphabet? I'm obviously going a little bit backwards, but whatever. Uh, but it was a great time uh, at Nike. What a what an environment working for, a, a, you know, obviously not directly, but indirectly for a man like Phil Knight. Um, and I would, I would, you know, shout out, read his book, um, shoe dog. Uh, what an amazing, what an amazing book and what an amazing man. I heard he just donated another $500 million to the university of Oregon. So, you know, talk about a, a, just a really decent human, but I had a great time working for them uh, in merchandising to start. So we were launching what we were calling shop and shops, Nike shops. So they were within a larger store and we're creating about a two, 3000 square foot Nike town scaled down into these little Nike shops. And so it was all about branding. It was all about that essence of brand and being the athlete. And the Bittersweet Symphony was their sort of theme song. I can, you know, they pivoted from just do it to I can. And it was just a great time. Uh, obviously there was, you know, Jordan was still 
huge in his heyday, launching the Jordan every year and just seeing the the the, the pernacity, if, if that's even a word, um, of 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 you know the consumer just wanting that product. And that was my taste of retail and taste of sales. And then I then I actually moved into managing a bunch of accounts for Nike uh, as an account manager on the apparel side. And it was great. Selfishly, I was sample size as well. So I got all the free shoes and all the free clothing I could possibly get, which was great because Nike actually doesn't pay very well. So, uh, so I at least had a great wardrobe. Um, and then after Nike, I left and went on to, where did I go after that? Oh, I went to Mattel. Um, and then I got, so I was back in toy and I worked for Mattel Canada for about five years brand manager, senior brand manager, brand director, all on the boys' side of the business. So Hot Wheels, Matchbox, and Tyco. And fantastic. Again, another great company. And again, here's my alphabet, but going backwards. Um, And so uh, an opportunity came about four years into my five years at Mattel Canada to move to Mattel US. So here I am going to the mothership uh, in El Segundo and picked up my, you know, nine month old daughter and, and my wife. And we went off to, we lived in Santa Monica and lived the dream uh, we were 23, uh, 23 blocks from the ocean, could smell the ocean every day and lived, uh, you know, worked at head office at Mattel and what a spectacular environment. I worked on the matchbox brand for a little over a year under a fantastic uh, mentor named Tim Kilpin, who's now back uh, in toy after a bit of a sabbatical and he's now uh, running play monster and then uh, and and worked with him and a guy named Jeff Walker who actually manages Kidcraft. so you know all these names are kind of the more senior people in these in these brands now and then I went into the games and puzzles area of Mattel and that was uh, into their design center and, and working with all the designers and working from concept. We had just bought apples to apples. We were relaunching, not relaunching, but, you know, reintroducing or reinvigorating Uno. We brought back Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Uh, it was just a great, great time to be there. And we moved a bunch of new executions on Uno, Uno Moo, which is more of a tactile for infant and preschool, Uno Splash, which was the plastic cards. And then, you know, a bunch of, you know, we worked on Uno refreshes and, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of other things, play uh, and, and Pictionary. But one of the best ones I thought was Apples to Apples. And you knew that that was such a great platform to expand upon. And I actually went to the company that was really disappointed that they didn't get it. So I, when I left Nintendo, sorry, when I left Mattel, I moved to Spin Master. So I moved back to Toronto, decided, you know, LA was a great spot, but it was not great for raising a family. So decided it was time to come home. Got a job with Spin Master. I was leading the Air Hogs team. So the, uh, the radio control side of Air Hogs, or no, side of, of Spin Master, which is Air Hogs. And it needed some work. It uh, it had been beat up for a while. It had sort of been forgotten. Uh, it had been left behind. High return rates on the Air Hogs Havoc, and 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 which is the which is the indoor helicopter. But again, really, really fantastic, innovative product. So, and partnering with a with a gentleman named James Elson, who is my counterpart on the engineering side, and I was literally wa- working with rocket scientists, like the guys with PhDs in 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 that field, and. Um, Man, it was it was incredible, uh, and we got to basically reinvent the the brand across the globe. So saw a great um, tripling of the business over the four years that I was there. I got to fly in a 
God, I want to say it's a, is it an L-34? Anyway, I got to fly in a fighter jet um, as, a, as a giveaway for, you know, one year we did an Air Hogs anniversary event where we brought people out basically to uh, Northern California to fly in a, uh, in, a, in a fighter jet. And they let me fly, fly in it. I was the co-pilot, clearly. But, everyone's, but they actually, the pilot let me grab the stick and, and do a barrel roll. And that was just like, wow. You know, I didn't have that on my bucket list, but I got to check it off and add it to my bucket list at the same time. Um, but an incredible brand to work for and work with. And a company, you know, very entrepreneurial. Spin Master is you know, second to none in, in entrepreneurialism. They are ones, if you're an inventor at all, and if you've got an inventor community that listens to this podcast, they are the team to go to with regards to your, your games and your in, and, and inventions, um, more so than the Mattels and even the Hasbros. And the, and the rationale is not because Hasbro and Mattel aren't good um, companies to work with, but they only have a certain amount of what we call slots and rationale for inventors. They like to use their own intellectual property for margin purposes, for protection purposes, all that kind of thing. Whereas Spin Master was born and raised out of invent out of the inventor community. And I'm not going to get into their history, but you know, read it. It's a fantastic history or research it. It's a fantastic history. But really where they they their foray was always with that inventor community. And so that inventor community created air hogs for them. It created, you know, um, all the different uh, you know, devil sticks. It created all those different the the the, the Fogo, Fogo, FOMO, Fogo the fishing rod. Um, all these different things that really brought them into who they are today, a, a multi-billion dollar public company. Um, Storm Chaser. Oh my God! What a what an what a uh, a vehicle! It was a a car. Sorry, it was a boat and a plane all at the same time. Unbelievable, right? So, um, anyway, great time. Great time working for Air Hogs. We, I will admit, one of one of my faults, and there are many, but this one I will admit. Uh, most of them I will not. Um, is that um, we missed the boat on the Parrot drone. When the Parrot drone came out and drones kind of were a big thing, us and even upper management would say that they we were continuously focused on that consumer price point of under 50 bucks kind of thing, and then the TV-promoted item at $80. The Parrot drone comes out at $329, $349, $299, whatever, very expensive, and we're like, ah, flash in the pan. Of course, if we put all this technology in behind our products, we could sell it for 400 bucks or 300 bucks and it would be a hell of a product, but it wouldn't go, it won't sell to the masses. Well, clearly look at all the drones that exist. I mean, you know, ding dong, you know, Amazon might be at your door right now with a drone. I mean, that's, that's how much drones changed the world. And so, you know, that was where we should have zigged instead of zagged or kept um, going forward. We were bringing out great innovation. I mean, we were using uh, uh, medical flex wire um, to, in our, in our um, gosh, why am I forgetting the name of the product right now? The something blaster. Anyway, it was a helicopter that could shoot missiles. Um, and it was, it was an incredible innovation. And it kept it under forty dollars retail or thirty dollars in the U.S. It was it was amazing, amazing. But we so we were trying to solve to technology within a certain price point instead of saying, carte blanche, let's go. Mm-hmm. And 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 really, when you look across the innovation platform in games and puzzles in in anything, it's usually those groundbreaking technologies, and it's not so much the price point that make the difference. 
you know, look at Peloton, look at, you know, you can just go down the list, look at Tesla, look at all those kind of things where they started and said, yeah, we're trying to get to a consumer price point, but really the consumer will come to us. Flat screen TVs, you know, $22,000 when they first came out, they're now like 400 bucks. Uh, right. So, so sometimes you got to build it and they will come to, to coin a phrase from, you know, Kevin Costner. Um, you know, sometimes that's what you've got to do, but you know, I had a great experience with Airhog. Absolutely loved it. Loved working with rocket scientists. They made me feel smarter and dumber every day. Um, and then I left that uh, and I went to retail. And so in Canada, there's a there's a company called Chapters Indigo, and it's a retailer very similar to Barnes and Noble. Uh, in fact, we call it Barnes and Noble North. And I was running their um, Canadian toy section basically in each store. About a hundred stores. They have a 10,000 square foot section of, of toys and games and, and, and books. Fantastic experience working for a premier retailer, uh, a very intelligent woman named Heather Reisman. And uh, that was three years of just pure, you know, creativity and, and growth. Uh, I was one of the sort of one of my um, feathers in my cap as I actually brought American Girl to Canada. Um, typically before you had to go to Chicago or New York to go to get your American girl doll and spend thousands of dollars to get there and at the store and so on. I was able to bring it to eight different retailers, uh, retail locations at Indigo shop and shop again for American girl, which was amazing. Worked with some brilliant people internally and externally at, at American girl slash Mattel. Um, and that was fantastic. And then, and then, and, Within my within my world, I've always had the entrepreneurial itch. I want to go do my own thing. So over schnitzel and a beer at Nuremberg um, a Toy Show, I, I was having dinner with a gentleman named Dave Charbonneau, owner of Kroger at the time. And Kroger is named Kroger because Klaus Kroger, a, a good, fine German-Canadian, started the company. So that's why the name. It's been 51 years, uh, and he gave it up about 30 years ago. Um, but Dave and I agreed that I would buy him out. Um, and so on April 15th, uh, sorry, April 1st, 2015, I became the proud owner of Kroger. And ever since we've been expanding um, from sort of the hobby world, the gift and toy area in Canada distribution to growth uh, in certain different categories within Canada, but also uh, really dipping our toe into the U.S. market, starting really our coming out party in the U.S., you know, not, to, you know, uh, was at New York Toy Fair in 2020, and uh, that was February, as you can imagine, February 2020. Not much going on globally, a little bit of this, I smell something in the air that's in Asia, but I think we'll be okay. To March, we're shutting down all the globe, right? And it's uh, so Kroger's foray into the U.S. market got kind of postponed uh, while COVID sort of you know ran rampant. Um, and so we're now... It allowed us to retrench, allowed us to build back, and now we're relaunching, you know, Kroger 2.0 in in the U.S. Uh, with lots of great, fantastic partners and 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 brands that we're working with. Grant, I think this is actually a very interesting question for you. I want you to explain to us the chain of how a game actually gets to our home and what role you play in that. So, listen, that's a great question, and and as we get further on into, you know, the DIY world, um, because you've got the Shopify's of the world and you've got the Amazon's of the world and so on. What you said about, I create it and then it 
I can bring it to market. That's getting closer and closer if you're well-funded. And again, you've got the GoFundMes, you've got the all those kind of things to make those those things happen. So that does happen. But that is a rare, rare, rare occasion. Most of the time, it's an inventor creates something, creates a model, a 3D model or an actual physical model, you know, 3D imaging or, or an actual physical model, and presents the concept to a big game manufacturer, the Hasbro's, the Mattel's, the Spin Masters, the, you know, down the road, the Ravensburger's, the, the Asmodee's down the road, or they do it on their own, right, through a capital investment from someone. But the majority of the time it happens, they develop it, and then they work with that partnership. Let's pick on Hasbro. So they work with Hasbro, and they will back and forth, back and forth, and 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 really it's I, as the inventor, own the intellectual property. I own the concept, and now Hasbro says, I want to theme it My Little Pony, okay? So you, as the inventor, have either given up those rights, or you're working with Hasbro and say, that, okay, that makes sense. And now your concept, your breadboard, your, your design is now getting sort of re-skinned and maybe re- rethought as a My Little Pony game. And I don't know why I start, started with My Little Pony, but we'll go there. Um, and, and, then, and then you're, as the inventor, you're uh, entitled to a royalty. And so your negotiation is you can have an upfront and that's it. Right, give me give me ten grand for my invention, and I'm going to move on. And I'm just again using that number as a as a as an example. Or give me a grand, and I'll take ten percent of royalty for the next five years, um, or five percent or whatever. It's up to negotiation after that. And as you become, as the inventor becomes more of an inventor and more of a known, they can that inventor can ask for more can shop around more, but also starts to think about, hmm, I have an idea before I go to Hasbro with it, I'm going to skin it, My Little Pony, and I'm going to bring it to them as a concept around My Little Pony, right? And then maybe it gets shifted from My Little Pony to Care Bears or something else. But, you know, so that's kind of how the concept happens. Games in particular seem to develop much more in North America. We seem to be much more of games developers. Maybe it's the late nights, the cold nights in the winters. I don't know. Or maybe we're just all gamers and we're goofy that way. Or we're more creative, whatever that is. But it seems to be that there are certain pockets in the world where more games seem to come from per capita. North America's one. Obviously, Germany's another one. And then there's, there's pockets. But when you think about where these games come from, a lot of them come from our backyard. So that's why, you know, Hasbro Milton Bradley has done so well for so long and, you know, their portfolio just continues to grow and they have to turn away inventors because they've got so much in the pipeline. Um, and the Spin Masters have, you know, since I was there, which was eight years ago um, to, to now, their, their games division has grown immensely to the point where they now just bought they're the ones that just missed out on Apple, uh, Apple's Apples, excuse me. And then they're also, uh, but they just bought Rubik's, right? So they've got Rubik's Cube now. And so they're realizing that games, one thing is not, they're not as seasonal. They don't just sell it at, at the holiday time frame. They sell all year long and there's good margin there. And they're not, they don't, they're not like Phoenixes. They don't flare and then go away. They continue to generate, you know, good revenue. They're a good staple. And people remember 
games more than they'll remember toys, right? It, it, you know, it, for, for, for the most part. To continue on, what, what happens then is, okay, the inventor has created the game, the, the producer, the, the manufacturer has manufactured the game. They go to their global supply chain, you know, global dis- distribution chain, whether it's direct, their, their direct, you know, Spin Master Europe or, sorry, Hasbro Europe or Hasbro Australia, whatever, or their distribution network, um, you know, someone like a Kroger and says, here's our product, here's your price, here's, our, here's your, your territory. What's your forecast? How many do you want to bring in? Who are you going to pitch it to? How are they going to react? And so on. And then it becomes a sales process. So now I know, you know, we're work. I'll, I'll pick on one of our, our vendor partners, um, a fantastic partner that we talked about before this podcast started, which was a great company called Identity Games. And they have a, a fantastic product right now in the escape room realm. Right, so they've got uh, they've got the traditional escape room game at home, then they've got a family version, and their most recent uh, release is Escape Room Puzzle Adventures, which is a hybrid puzzle and escape room kind of together, and it's really a neat concept. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take up all the all the time to talk about the concept, but I I strongly recommend people check it out. The Amazon reviews are off the chart. Um, so, but they will create that concept and then they will show it to us at different toy shows. So whether it was at this toy, where I saw it was at this toy in London in June of 2019, um, or they'll show it at Nuremberg or they'll show it at Hong Kong toy fair, or they'll show it at New York toy fair, or they'll show it at Dallas or at Astra. So all these sort of key or, or, or Gen Con or whatever, they'll show them all, uh, to all their vendor partners, their, their, their wholesalers basically. And then we take it and show it to our retailers. And they might go direct as well. They might go direct to our retailers. But really, if you're a good distributor, your goal is to let the manufacturer market and create their own product. And then you take it and sell it for them. Let them focus on their strengths. And we'll focus on ours. Ours is getting the product in the hands of of the customer. Well, yeah, the customer and ultimately the consumer. Their job is to just create the pipeline and create, keep creating great games, working with the inventor community internally, externally. That's their job. If a distributor is not doing their job, then find a new distributor. But that, that, that role is you got to sort of define who you are and what your responsibilities are and let the product um, company create product. So I want to continue the previous question and ask you about how you go through your decision-making process. Is it kind of like a shark tank scenario where the producers are coming to you and you're like, sell me on this game? Or how do you think about the products that you want to represent to some of the retailers or directly to the customers that you do? No, absolutely. And, and, and so it is a bit of both. Um, on the Shark Tank side, it's more on the when you're doing more prospecting and you're working with other potential vendor partners. So if I'm meeting with someone at New York or if I'm meeting someone at, at, at Nuremberg or any of those, I'm getting introduced to their their games, their product, their puzzles, their whatever that that they're selling. And one is I'm looking at, you know, honestly, I'm looking in the mirror and saying, okay, great, that's a beautiful baby Bjorn kind of copy. Great, beautiful, I can see the innovation, I get it. I'm not in the baby segment. I shouldn't be jumping here, right? Because I'm not gonna do you a service. Again, as a good distributor, I'm a partner with you. I have to be able to look at you in the mirror, or sorry, you in the face, but I also have to be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, am I going to do a good job? 
So that's sort of litmus test number one. Number two is, okay, does this product, um, it passes that one, does this product fit within the marketplace? What's its price point? What's its play pattern? Does it make sense for um, what the trusted source of Kroger is to the retailer? So if, you know, we're not going to start carrying really offensive product um, because we're selling traditional sort of classic games. If we want to get into that, then maybe we got to be Kroger after dark <laughs> and create sort of a segment where it's like, okay, here's our, here's our alter ego. That was Dr. Jekyll. Here's Mr. Hyde kind of thing. And if we're okay with that, that's fine because, because the, the, the channel or the, com the communication to your ultimately to your retail partners and the end consumer needs to be genuine or you can't, or it, it won't make any sense whatsoever. So we'll do that. So that's the shark tank feel of biz dev for the business development side. When you're working with your existing vendors, it's obviously, and I always warn them about this. I say, unfortunately, you're working with a guy that used to be in product development. So you're going to get my product development comments, whether you like them or not. And then hopefully it's a good vendor partner. And they're like, absolutely. We, you know, the more we can solicit the better for us to make our product better. So they're hoping that there's product development, you know, support, you know, insight from North America, from South America, from Australia, New Zealand, from Asia, from Europe, and so on. And then they can kind of take all of that and, 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 and bring it into a slight product improvement. Not saying that they're going to alter it for us, but it's just a feedback and it's a communication and it's, it's more an alignment with them to understand, okay, here's what our go-to-market strategy is going to be. Right. It makes sense that this is the play pattern. This is the this. This is the consumer we're going after. And this is how we're going to go to market. And really, then it comes down to which retail do we want to go? Do we want to launch at just a specialty at the beginning to sort of incubate the product and then grow to masses? Because as soon as you get to Walmart, yes, the numbers are big. The, quality, the, the, you know, the quantities are big, but you've kind of run you've run to the end of the course because you're not going to go from a Walmart to specialty. Specialty wants to have the 50 points margin, plus they want to be profitable. They also want to have the uniqueness. They don't want to be, they're not a small Walmart. They're, they're Jack and Jill toys, right? They're, 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 they're marbles, right? They're, they're, they're who they are because that's who they want to be. And they want to offer their consumer a little bit more of a dwell factor when they're in there, but also a little bit more of an expertise. Walmart's, Walmart's a drive-through for lack of a better word. It's just big, big aisles and you got to kind of know what you're looking for or you self self select. Same thing when you go online for Amazon, right? Great, great opportunity. If you know what you're looking for, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to get fed the information other than reading reviews. That's kind of how you default back to your point about what, what our job is. So when it comes to the shark tank piece, kind of like it, does it fit within the Kroger world? Does it fit within the Canadian or the U S uh, mindset, consumer mindset, price point, all that. And then when it's working with your vendors, it's understanding what is the, what is the size of the prize? Does this work within our, within our market? So Grant, how's the pandemic affected, you know, your company and how things work. And then with that kind of following it, how does that affect the future of puzzle games? So, I, I think based on what COVID has brought all of us and, and sort of affected our psyche um, is really a bit of a, I'm not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, but I, I am a human being. And I believe that there is a, my sentiment is that there's going to be a hesitation to going into big crowds. And I think that's going to be a hesitation for a, a relatively long time. 
And, and the rationale there is just, again, what COVID has brought to people and that also that comfort of nesting, that comfort of nesting that we've kind of been forced to do for the past almost 16 months. So it's, it's a really interesting scenario of, well, will we come out guns a-blazing going social? I think there will be some he significant hesitation on getting back to quote unquote normal. There, the new normal will be a little bit more sociability at home or people's homes or smaller gatherings. And therefore, I believe there'll be a lot more gaming going on. Uh, and, the, and the reason why is I think we're all looking for entertainment, uh, but we're also looking for that connection. We realized over 16, 18 months of COVID that when you want something and you can't have it, you, you, you want it even more, right? And that's back to, you know, your children, <laughs> you know, tell them the old smarty rule. I'll give you one smarty now, or I'll give you the box in 20 minutes. What would, what would you like? And usually they'll take the one now and then they'll nag you for the rest of the day for the rest of the smarties. But yes, that's the, that's, I think we all are like, we want that connection. We want that more intimate connection. It's not about how many more people we can connect with. It's making those deep, deeper, more meaningful connections face to face in 3d, right? Not, not in 1d or 2d. It's, it's going to be in 3d, but it's I think there's going to be a lot more dinner parties. I think there's going to be a lot more sort of sociability events. Let's be honest. Canada is legal for, for, for weed consumption. I think the U.S. is probably three to five years away from legality, or at least the majority of the states will be legal. So I think there's that sociability piece, too, um, where, where it's a little bit more fun to have, you know, to have a game tonight. Um, I'm not saying that it wasn't fun with, with you know, just staying straight or being with alcohol, but it just is another variable. Um, so you're going to see a little bit more of that um, uptick. So I think predictability wise over the next 12 to 24 months, we continue to see, you know, these escape room and those mystery games and the, and the, and more experiential gaming happening. It will definitely continue. And if it steps back, it's in a couple of years, but there's also this pipeline of lack of pipeline of new, of new innovation other than in gaming. Right, gaming. You know, they tried so hard. The Mattels, the Hasbro's, the Spin Masters, and so on tried so hard to tie a board game to an app, right, and make that work. It never worked. It was, it was, it, it failed every time. But now the sort of the mystery games have have figured it out a little bit better. That it's more of an enhancement. It doesn't need. You shouldn't have to have an app to make the product work. You should have an app or a or a website or something to enhance the experience. So it's much more of this, you know, it's a nice to have, not a need to have. Mm -hmm. So I really feel that that's there as well as I think puzzling is going to continue as well, and they'll be they'll be and continue to thrive. Will there be a bit of a puzzle hangover? Yeah, I think you know, I think as much as you have these, you know, um, bonfires of people burning their masks because they're so sick of wearing cloth over their face, I think there might be the same thing about burning some puzzles. It's like oh, I've done these puzzles, I'm done. But the the mental the mental reset that we all need, um, and that mental quietness. I think puzzles has exposed that over the past 18 months or people have been exposed to that puzzling is a great way to do so is to, is to just use a different side of your brain, use your creativity and find that inner calm and inner peace. And that's where I think puzzles have, have, have really sort of 
resonated. People forgot that puzzles were out there. I'm, I'm obviously generalizing, but it's it's much more of a. I think there's much more of an opportunity for people to um, to return back to puzzles. Tell us a little bit about what you anticipate the future of your company becoming, because we always ask creators, you know, what is the next game that they're making? But you're not creating content, you're fulfilling it. But is there any plans in your future to expand distribution, to maybe become your own game studio? Are you looking at other lanes? What is the future of Kroger? Uh, So for distribution, there are ways to improve the process significantly. And and one of the things is it's a pretty antiquated um, business to to be in currently. There's a lot of sort of old-time distributors who are just buy-sell, right? They buy and they sell, and that's about it. And they don't house much inventory. And I think what you and I talked about before was more in the U.S. market where there's very limited amount of actual what would they call stocking distributors in the U.S. There are lots of reps and representatives and agents that will sell you product as a retailer, but then the product is either warehoused with the manufacturer or that's warehoused overseas, and you have you as the manu- as the retailer have to commit to buying it. You know what's called FOB, which is freight on board from. Uh, in a container or using a consolidator to get it from the factory itself, which is in Asia or Europe or wherever, to your store. A stocking distributor actually takes the takes the risk, takes the inventory upon themselves and puts it in a warehouse or, or a, a location in your market uh, or throughout your market. So the U.S. is obviously a pretty large area, landmass as well as people. So lots of distributors that are stocking distributors have two or three different actual uh, warehouses full of product. So the, the, the reality is for a distributor going forward, the value in a distributor is being able to get product from you, the distributor, to the retailer at the quickest amount of, within the quickest amount of time and at the cheapest amount um, so that the cost savings or the lack of increasing cost allows the consumer to get the value and the very best product at the very best price. Amazon is obviously top of class, right? They're 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 the they're the creme de la creme. They have robots. They have twenty four seven. They're moving inventory and widgets everywhere across the world, uh, or at least across each of their territories, in record time. As a stocking distributor, you're not going to compete with an Amazon, but you can compete with the idea of Amazon. You can compete with the time frame that Amazon takes. You can compete with the value and service that Amazon delivers. And really, so if you can, you know, you take them as a model or any distribution model as sort of being more modern and effective, you allow yourself to reach the consumer faster, better, cheaper, right? The old $6 million man, you know, comment we can rebuild them. You want to be faster. You want to be better. You want to be stronger. You want to, you know, get your product there cheaper, faster for your retailer. You also want to have the price value of the customer service side. I'm not, you know, as a distributor, your customer is usually the retailer. You have some end of line consumer, like right to the, right to the end of the line to to the purchaser. But that's few and far between versus um, most of the time you're selling to your retailer. So you want to protect that retailer. You want to protect their margin. You want to protect them as a as a going entity because they're your they're your 
bread and butter. They're your client. So you basically want to make sure that you're not only delivering the product at the most effective way, but you're protecting the marketplace so that, that you know, the, the online resellers or so on are not cutting the price down because they're living in their mama's basement and they can make 10 points margin where, you know, this retailer has staff, has electricity, has rent, has all those utilities, all those other things that they need to manage and therefore they need to make their, their margin. So as a distributor, you kind of play a little bit of good cop, bad cop or referee and you need to make sure that you're protecting the brands that you represent. So that's the, that's the Wizard of Oz piece. And then you're also protecting your retailers. Those are the, protect- mm-hmm. those are the protections that you want to continue to um, maintain. And therefore, you're going to gain the trust. So if Kroger, as an example, focusing on us, our focus is always on protecting the retail margin and price. And so by protecting the price, we're protecting our vendor partners, our, our, just, our, our manufacturers. And then by protecting the price, we're protecting ultimately the retailer and ultimately the consumer. So that's kind of the role you play other than obviously moving a widget, right? Our Kroger's widgets are games and puzzles and, and, and toys and some lifestyle items, but, and being really efficient at that but also passing that savings or those efficiencies on both up the chain to your manufacturing partner and down the chain to your retail partner and ultimately to the consumer. It's a constant juggling act. And so therefore you've always got to be up to speed on the latest ways of moving product, who to work with. So there are such great technologies out there now, you know, we all, kind of use either Travelocity or Expedia for travel, whether it's a hotel or whether it's a, whether it's a, 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 a resort or a flight or whatever that is, there are those kind of services within logistics that you can partner with and they're not expensive and you can grow your business by using um, these kind of portals that allow you to pick the best carrier to get the best product, sorry, to get the best, you know, your product, which you believe is the best, of course, to the consumer. So Indiana might be, you know, from, from our warehouse in, in, in Buffalo to Indiana, we might use FedEx, but to San Francisco, we might use UPS to, you know, and or USPS, whatever those are, you're using these carriers the most efficiently possible. So they, because they have their efficiencies. Mm-hmm. So don't buck the trend. Don't try and fight. Don't try and fight that, you know, swim upstream, go with the current. And, and pick the right um, partners or portals that allow you to pa- pick the best partners to allow you to be profitable, ultimately to allow the retailer to be profitable, and ultimately allow the consumer to get the best value. To put it in a, in a really simple term, at least for my brain, is um, imagine you're hosting a dinner party, back to the solo, sort of dinner party theme, right? You're going to serve your guests the very best creation that you want to serve them. You don't want them to leave unhappy or get sick the next day because you just gave them awful food or whatever. But you also, you're proud of what you served. You're proud to eat what you, what you made. Um, and you're also probably conscious of what you bought to make that product, right? You're not going to buy it, you know, oh, I dropped that, you know, minced meat on the, on the, on the dirt. I'm probably not going to serve that to my to my guests. I'm going to go home and buy new men's meat or whatever. I'm going to protect my my reputation, be it to to another couple or three people or four people or 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 whatever. That reputation is, hey, I really like 
going over to their house for, for a dinner party because it's really good food and it's really good company and it's really good conversation and so on. Ultimately for Kroger, we're the, you know, our retailers are the dinner guests and our, our vendor partners are really what's in the cupboard. Um, so we want to make sure that we serve the absolute best. A question we ask everyone, what are you playing? Um, it can be a board game, a video game, a puzzle, you know, any of those types of things. What games are you playing and that you'd recommend to others? So currently enjoying, I, I, I love the identity games product. Uh, I love the escape rooms because it's just expandable. It's short nuggets. If you want to play just for 60 minutes, you play one adventure and then it's, and then you move on to the next or the puzzle. And you can do that. I did that with my 10 year old and, uh, and it was fantastic. Just that bonding, that fun. Uh, and by the way, she, she got most of the clues before I did, which was awesome. Um, and then I'm, I'm playing the classics. We represent a, a fantastic brand, at least in, in, in Canada, not in the U S but we represent, um, a company called winning moves games. And they're the, they're the old Hasbro Milton Bradley games. But what I grew up with, with, you know, risk movers were all made out of wood. Um, you know, they haven't been cost reduced to hit a price point. They're just maintained, you know, it's an $80 game, but it's the best. It's the trifold board. You know, the game of life has got the spinner that makes that sound and it actually spins and, and so on. So it's, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a glutton for the classics. And then I also love the sort of newer, you know, the variability of a game that changes depending on the people or the audience that you have with you. That's what I like. Grant, thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Your journey, what you do is so interesting to the intersection of games that we get to cover on a regular basis. And we're just super thankful for hearing from you. And hopefully we will connect again in the future. Yes. And get to talk some more about the stuff that we're both very clearly excited about. But mm -hmm. thanks to you, sir. And it was a blast. Now, usually right here, we usually say, hey, if you want to play their game. Uh, but no, I would encourage you to go look at Grant's company. It's Kroger. It's not the Kroger, as he said, that you go get your groceries at K-R-O-E-G-E-R. -E -E you can just Google search that and find what they do um, and just dig into the world a little bit. It's interesting hearing Grant's story, how he found himself. I think there's room for a lot of us to find ourselves in similar situations if we want to get more involved with the industry at large. Uh, but check that out. And you can help us too. Uh, if you know people who have connections that want to be on the show that are not creators, we would love to interview them on the show. Send them our way. Um, you can send me money at uh, this address. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this, this is my cash app. <laughs> this is my cash app. Please uh, send me money here. No, um, you can do the normal things. Uh, you can go to our social medias. Uh, just f look up Puzzling Company on Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, we generally try to post things every week. Um, we also post in our social media groups. Uh, so that's always a lot of fun. Um, just put us on a regular download. Um, you can go to, you know, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major, you know, uh, apps for podcasts and just put us on a download. We'd love to uh, see you guys listening. That would be amazing. Yep. Social media, website. If you want to be on the show, if you're a new creator, we'd love to have you contact at puzzlingcompany.com. But that is uh, more or less going to wrap us up for this week, except who are we having next week, Zach? Jared, I think we have some unsolved business oh you don't say uh, yes to say the <laughs> least jared it is unsolved case files i like this uh, as as we've mentioned before we're going we're on a major crime true crime kick right now and we're super excited to also have a couple of guests the creators of this on next week to talk about what they're doing they're doing a really great job doing some really cool stuff that i think is going to help us all out at large 
But that's going to wrap us up for this week. Uh, Super excited to talk about that next week. And as always, keep playing games. Reach out to us. But that is this week in Puzzling Company. This is Jared. It's Zach. We'll see you all next week. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Find us on social media at Puzzling Company and online at puzzlingcompany.com. Check back weekly for new episodes. Until next time, keep puzzling. This has been a Globe Media Network podcast.